can turn to Ephesians chapter 6 if you haven't already. And this is our second to last sermon in the book of Ephesians. And uh, next week we'll have a little bit of a different kind of sermon as we reflect on the whole book. And so I would encourage you if you have questions either about how to understand something in Ephesians or how to put that text into action in your life, email me this week and there's a good chance that, that we'll work it into our final reflection on the book of Ephesians next week. But this week we're, we're considering Ephesians 6, 18 through 24. And we're going to observe this theme of speaking that runs throughout this, this ending of Ephesians. Now you'll see on the PowerPoint, I have some pictures of some payphones. Um, this summer, I was at a rural camp in Michigan, and I saw a working payphone for the first time in a long time. And it reminded me of my days in high school. Um, in high school, I was not allowed to have a cell phone. In fact, well, I don't think I, I was. I never pressed the issue because I was a little bit legalistic and devious, and I had a feeling my parents would not let me have a cell phone, so I never asked them about it. And instead, because I worked a job and got a paycheck, I thought, I'm going to go to Shopco and get this track phone, so I'll get this Nokia block phone, and I'll be able to text with my friends because they all have phones. And I had this great fear, because uh, I rode my bike everywhere, we lived in kind of a small town, I had this great fear of getting hit and dying, and then my parents finding my body with a cell phone in my pocket, because I knew they would be displeased with me for, for this. Um, so what, what that meant, though, is that whenever I was going to call home, I would stop my bike if I wanted to go to a friend's house instead or something. I would stop it at a payphone at the gas station, and I would call them from that payphone because they had this device connected to their phone called caller ID, and, and they would have my cell phone number if I called with my cell phone. And so sometimes my friends just did not understand why I needed to go use a payphone when I had a cell phone in my pocket. Um, <laughs> but I was too prideful to admit to them that I was, you know, a, a deceptive you know, a little rascal who didn't, didn't want my parents to know about this. Um, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because um, I think this is how we can think a little bit about the temple and the progression of the temple in the Bible. There's this guy named Blake Hearson, who's a professor at Midwestern. He wrote a book called Go Now to Shiloh, and he uses this uh, a, a, a version of this analogy that I think is helpful. When you think of the Jerusalem temple, this temple is supposed to be a house of prayer. This, this is where people could go and be assured that their prayers would be heard by the Lord, right? So as you look throughout the Bible, there are these sacred places where people go, and it's almost like they know they will have a direct connection to God so they can speak to God there. So Jacob had this place called Bethel, the, the house of God, where, where he could go, and multiple times he talks to God there. And then there's the tabernacle that travels with them. And eventually Solomon builds the temple and God's presence resides there. There should be a house of prayer and, and you could go there and you could be reasonably certain that you could, you know, go to the payphone and you would have a direct connection to God there. Um, so uh, you, you needed to identify the sacred place and, and that's where you would speak words to God. Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, we read this, that because of Christ, who is the true temple, uh, he has, his body is now a temple. So he writes in Ephesians 2.21, in Christ the whole building, that's the church, being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. 
and we see in the New Testament that every Christian is the temple of God, and that every church is like the full, thick form of that temple, and we have direct access to God by the Spirit because of the work of Jesus, and because of Jesus's identity as the true temple. Now, when I came across this payphone in Michigan this summer, um, at, at this camp I was at, it, it would be silly of me to, if I needed to make a phone call, um, not just make the phone call from my cell phone, but to traipse all the way across, you know, the, the campsite to the payphone and to spend money and make the call. And, and what my friends thought when I was in high school, why, it's so silly that you're, you're going to the payphone. Well, well, I could call wherever I was. There was a sense in which I, I could constantly be on my phone and communicating and be assured that I would, my communication would be received. And we all do that now. We all, we all are constantly on our phones communicating. Well, well, wouldn't it be obscene and absurd to think I am limited in the places and the times that I can connect to God? I, we, we don't need to go to a temple now to have confidence of that connection. Because we are the temple and we have the Spirit dwelling within us, Paul can tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 to pray at all times in the Spirit. And I think that's what, this, what he's saying, is you have the Spirit of God in you, so you can pray at all times. Now, this command, we might say, is not disconnected from the things that went before it. This, this is connected to that paragraph about standing firm and putting on the armor of God. And last week, I tried to convince you that Paul is reading Isaiah 59, and, and he's trying to communicate to the new covenant people of God what Isaiah prophesied about. And so I drew some connections for you. Um, and, and I might need some help clicking through this. My, my clicker might be... Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Um, there we go. Um, the, he structures essentially the whole book of Ephesians following Isaiah 59. But what I want to draw your attention to is that um, the prophet talks about the arm of the Lord, this messianic divine warrior putting on righteousness as body armor in the helmet of salvation. And then Paul instructs us in Ephesians 6 to put on righteousness like armor and put on the helmet of salvation. Now, following that trajectory, in Isaiah 59, the prophet records the words of the Lord that he would put his spirit and his words in your mouth from now on and forever. Now, Paul concludes this idea of putting on the armor of the Lord with, with this idea of speaking in the spirit. And, and really, everything that will come in the rest of Ephesians has to do with words, and I think words that are now spirit-empowered, and, and it's the fulfillment, in a sense, of what was prophesied by Isaiah. We have the Spirit in us, and so now our words ought to be like God-breathed words, in a sense, in, in the sense that God can speak through us and we can speak to him. So what I want to outline is that our words now, as the new covenant people, as temples of God, take on different shapes. And, and we're going to use our words to pray, to proclaim the gospel, to encourage, and to bless. So I think there are four ways that our speech is transformed by this indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I need to pause here and clarify something. When we get to some sections here, it's not as if Paul is commanding you, uh, transform your speech now to encourage people and to bless people. What, a lot of what we're going to come across, Paul is just dealing with logistics. He's saying, I'm sending this guy Tychicus to you to inform you. And so I, I want to be careful to say that at certain points on just one of these, there's a direct command to pray for one another. 
The others, I think, are implications, and Paul is illustrating for us what it looks like for people who are indwelt by the Spirit to speak. And I think those are examples for us, and we should follow in their examples. So we'll get to those as we go. But let's begin by considering this first command, where we're commanded to pray for one another. Paul writes in verse 18, to pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Now, this, this um, instruction, I was talking to one of my friends about preaching this text, and he said, this text is just so on the nose, you almost don't even have to preach it. You can just read that line and then read it again and read it again, and people get it. It's not like the other text where we need this deep dive into the historical background. I mean, some of that might be helpful, okay? So when he says to pray with every prayer and request, he, he might be warning these people who are living in a city where there are temples not to take their prayers to other gods, but to pray in the Spirit. So there may be some historical pieces there, um, but this text is just very straightforward, isn't it? Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. I want to elaborate on this just briefly, but then I want us to think about how should we respond to this? And, and already you should be thinking by praying. Okay, so, so keep thinking that. Um, but I think Paul is drawing a contrast to the way that the disciples prayed in the garden right before Jesus uh, was crucified. How did the disciples pray in the garden? They prayed with no alertness and very little perseverance. They slept, didn't they? Well, well, I think what Paul is drawing us to think is that because we are now indwelt by the Spirit, as temples of the living God, wherever we are and whenever we are, we can pray. And in fact, we're to pray in the Spirit. The Spirit will enable us to speak. So therefore, unlike the disciples who fall asleep at prayer in the most desperate hour of redemptive history, we might say, we can pray in, in an alert way with all persever perseverance. We need to stay alert, and we need to keep praying. Now, I don't know about you, but praying is, sometimes it's hard, isn't it? Um, how many of you have prayed, and you've nodded off to sleep, or you've started to think about something else? Um, you might even have really good intentions of, you know, praying for, for a brother or sister in the Lord who's facing a hard thing, and then you start thinking about all your hard things, and then you start thinking about what's next on your schedule, and it's really hard to pray with any sort of perseverance or alertness. I think we just need to all admit we, we struggle with this. Um, I struggle with this. I struggle to pray. And, and I think that if we're going to obey this command, we need to start by just admitting we are, are pitiful prayers for the most part. Um, probably not everyone here, but most of us just need to admit that we are not very good at praying. So how, how can we improve at this? Well, I want to say first that we lean into this idea of praying at all times in the Spirit. There's a sense in which the only way that we will be able to pray in the way that Paul describes is through the aid of the Holy Spirit. And, and sometimes in our prayers, we won't even know what to say or, or how to pray, and we rely on the Spirit, Spirit to give us the words that we even need to say as we pray. So I want to um, direct our response to this command first by talking to those uh, of us who perhaps are just apathetic towards prayer or forgetful about the, the responsibility we have to pray. 
this is where the just on-the-nose nature of the text comes into play. If you're not praying, pray. That is God's will for you, to take every burden, to take every situation, to take every interaction to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes this will take shape where you, where you are specifically giving time to pray, the, the heads bowed and eyes closed kind of prayers. Other times this will be the kind of prayers that are just passing thoughts that you think to the Lord. But, but if you're not praying, and if you, if you reflect on your past week and say, I didn't pray once this week, um, you, you need to pray. This is God's will for you, and you can do it because the Spirit enables you to pray. And, and in fact, you stand in a privileged position in all of redemption history to where you are a temple of God. And just as, as Jesus rebuked the, uh, the people turning the, the temple into a marketplace, and he said that this ought to be a house of prayer, I, I want to speak those words of Jesus to you. You ought to be a house of prayer. I ought to be a house of prayer. And, and then collectively, as a church, is, is that thick form of the temple, our church ought to be a house of prayer. So if you're just forgetful when it comes to pray, let, let me give you one suggestion uh, for our corporate prayer and one for your private prayer. For our corporate prayer, pay attention to our church calendar and when, th- when the all-church prayer day, it's not a full day, it's just the morning, it's just a few hours, when that shows up, put that on your calendar and make an effort to come and pray. I, I don't think that that's the only way that churches can become houses of prayer, but we try to emphasize this by having our quarterly prayer days. Put that on your calendar and make an effort to be there. Um, it, that, that will help you and remind you, I need to be a praying person and we need to be a praying church. Um, is, is a subset of this. As the pastoral prayer is happening in the service, pray along with the pastor who's leading that prayer. This is not a speech that they're delivering, but they're inviting you to join them as they lead us before the Lord in, in prayer. And, and so think about what they're saying and add your yes and amen to, to what they say. Add your requests to the prayers that they pray. So, so my suggestion for, for forgetful and apathetic houses of prayer is, is to intentionally put into your calendar and into direct focus these times of corporate prayer. More personally, I, I would just suggest that if you are struggling to pray, chances are you can talk to anyone out of, after the service and say, hey, I struggle to pray. Do you struggle to pray? And if they say yes, maybe say something like, well, maybe we can pray together and, and keep each other accountable. Uh, that's part of the interaction of the body of Christ together. Uh, we noted this last week in the commands to stand firm. You aren't the lone ranger going off to battle on your own. You're part of an army. Well, lean into that and draw other people in who will help you pray, um, who, who will help you speak the words that God puts on our mouth as we take every prayer and every request before him. Pull others into that. And, and I think that's the first step in, in creating a, a pattern of prayer in your life. Now, I also want to say a word to those who would say, I I am struggling in a way that makes it really hard for me to pray. It's not that I forget to pray. It's not that I'm apathetic about prayer, but, but I am in a really hard place. And every time I pray, it seems like God is not there. So, so as much as I understand that I am a temple of, of God and I have a direct line to God, it seems like God does not hear me. 
Or, or even worse, it feels like those situations at work where, where I have a complaint that I send up to HR, but I know HR is in league with, with the boss who's mistreating me, and, and there is not any kindness or mercy or grace there. That's how I feel about sending up my needs to the Lord. He is not on my, I do not feel like God is on my side. I, I think that, that there is a word of hope for you in the whole letter to the Ephesians when it feels like God does not hear you, or even when it feels like God is against you, Paul has pointed out that God has proved that he is for you in Jesus Christ. He, he has looked at sinful humanity, and whatever badness you might be feeling God is rejecting you for, or, or whatever brokenness about you you are seeing so clearly, it is true that God sees those things clearly too. But, but he's not turning away from you because of that if you are in Christ. He has given you Jesus who now advocates on your behalf. He says, yes, that person is a mess and that person is broken. And, and in fact, they don't even feel like you are a good father who loves them and hears them. They feel like you're the kind of father when, when they ask for bread, you're just giving them stones. But what Jesus proved in dying for you and raising from the dead, in mediating on our behalf to the Father, he proves that our Father is one who doesn't give us stones, but gives us sweet bread from heaven. He gives us Jesus himself. And it is true that there are seasons in life where we will walk through feeling like God does not hear us. But, but when we doubt that God hears us, um, some, someone told me this line, and this is out of context, but I think it's just as helpful. He said, when, don't doubt in the darkness what you saw so clearly in the light. And, and when you saw Jesus as the true expression of God's love for you, and when you saw that God truly loved you, and you saw that in the light of the gospel, don't doubt that now when you're walking through the, through the darkness of, of doubt in hard situations in sin and brokenness. Don't doubt in the darkness what you saw clearly in the light. I, I am not trying to invalidate your experience, but what I am trying to say is that, that there is a larger picture and you are experiencing a valley, but in Christ, he meets you there in the valley because the spirit is still in you. The spirit is still with you. So even though it might be painful and difficult just to utter a brief momentary passing prayer, do it and do it in faith because the spirit is in you and he is mediating to the Father on your behalf. That doesn't answer all of your experiential problems, but it does give you a path forward to say, don't give up on speaking to God, because he hasn't given up on you. Reminds me of Paul's words when he says, is, is God faith, faithless because we're faithless? No, we have a more sure word from him, and that is in Jesus Christ, who continues to represent us before the Father. So we need to pray. But, but then Paul directs our attention to our prayers. He says to pray with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. We need to pray for one another. This is in our church covenant. This is just basic Christian conduct. We pray for other Christians. We, we bring their requests and needs before the Lord. Now, I, w I want to draw your attention to the fact that this is a general reality. You, you pray with intercession for all the saints. We don't wait 
uh, he didn't say, pray for all the saints who are experiencing a health issue today, or, or pray for all the saints who, who need a job. We should do it in those times as well, but we need to have a larger vision of interceding for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I think we can take the content of Ephesians, this entire letter, and pray that these things would be true and maintained and worked out in, in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should regularly pray for one another. Once again, we do this every other Wednesday night. We're going to do it this Wednesday night. And on, on the best of days, we, we have printed out every name of every member in the church. And in the final session, we break up and we pray for every person in this assembly. This is one way that you can intercede for one another, regardless of, of pressing issues or non-pressing issues in their life. We, we need to pray for one another. And I would encourage you to do that. And if I can help you by giving you one of the printouts of all the members in our church so that you can pray through the list of members here, uh, sometimes we have those on the back table. Otherwise, see me and I will get that to you to help you pray for one another, as Paul commands us to here. So we use our words, this first piece of speaking. This is the direct command for us that, that is timeless, we might say. We should always be praying at all times for one another. But then the second piece here is that I think we ought to use our words to proclaim the gospel. Now Paul writes in verse 19, Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Now, we, we all can say, well, this was a direct command to the Ephesians to pray for Paul specifically, and we don't need to obey this section of the text because Paul is no longer alive, and therefore there's nothing to pray for. I think we would all say that's wrong. We, we would all rightly take that next step of saying, are there genuinely comparable situations in which there are other people who are working to proclaim the gospel that we should pray for? And, and that's a good first step out. We should pray for those who proclaim the gospel vocationally. Um, Jeff Thomas, who, who we support through Teaching Leaders International, we should pray for him regularly. We all know missionaries that our church doesn't directly support. We should pray for them regularly. You should pray for your pastors who attempt to speak the gospel um, in sermons and in counseling situations, and you should pray for one another who are given the task of proclaiming the gospel. So, so because we've already talked about interceding for one another, I want to narrow down and say that because of who we are as the temples of God, we ought to use our words to proclaim the gospel. This is the, the words that the Spirit has put on our mouth to speak to others. And if you can envision it in this way, it, it may be helpful. In, in Genesis 1, where it's describing creation, where the Spirit is hovering over the depths and God speaks life into existence, I think that we have this new covenant reality where we have been given the Spirit, and as we speak the words of the gospel, the words of the gospel bring into existence new creatures people who are being remade in Jesus, and you have been given this mediating responsibility to be the ones who speak those words. So, so it's not God directly speaking and creating something out of nothing, like we might read in Genesis 1. Instead, he's speaking through his image bearers, those who are being conformed to the image of God, and we proclaim the gospel, and the Spirit uses those words to bring out of nothing something, to bring out of death 
life, to bring out of rebels those who now worship the Lord. And this is what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, where he talks about those who were once in darkness now being brought into light. We, as people who know the gospel, have a responsibility to use our spirit-enabled speech to, to proclaim the gospel wherever we are. Now, once again, this is something that I think we're probably not as good about or consistent about as, as any of us would like to be. And so we need to think about how should we do this? How, how should we go about this? Um, and, and I don't know that it would be right to prescribe one way of, of speaking the gospel and one way of engaging in what we might call evangelism. Um, there, there were um, cultural seasons where there was one way that maybe worked really well, where you would go door to door in a neighborhood, knocking on the doors and giving people tracks or, or giving tracks in a drive through or something like that. I, I don't know that that is perhaps the, the most helpful way of doing things, especially in a more secularized culture that doesn't have the same Christian grounding points where when you start to talk about Jesus and the gospel, everyone at least has a conceptual category of what you mean. I think that probably the way our proclaiming of the gospel will take place most uh, regularly is as you get to know people and as you talk to them about the way the gospel changes your life and changes everything that you look at in the world. And as you get to know them better and as you start to talk to them about the redemptive story, I think, I think it's through our relationships and the way that we live and the way we talk about how we perceive the world that we will be able to start speaking the gospel in a clear and understandable way. Certainly, there are moments where you'll have a one-off conversation where you should call people to faith and repentance. But, but I think most people that we run into now don't have categories for what those things even mean. This does not create less work for us or less intimidating work, as if, if you know, knock, I remember as a, you know, six-year-old knocking on doors and being really intimidated as I handed out tracks. I think there, there's a call for greater courage and reliance on the Lord. As you don't go through a neighborhood knocking on a door, you know, saying a few phrases, but instead turn the corner in the relationships you've been building, and, and you cast aside the fear that this cool, person who likes you might no longer like you because you, you've now called them to faith and repentance as they've come to understand the gospel. It, it, it takes a kind of steadfastness and courage and perseverance that I, I think we need to lean into and, and we need to move beyond saying, uh, this is a redemptive relationship and Lord willing, before they die, I'll have told them you need Jesus. We, we need to move beyond that to declare the gospel to our friends, to our neighbors, but, but this takes a lot of plowing. I, I think that uh, the parables of the kingdom are helpful as we think about the way that, that we declare the gospel. It's like planting seeds and, and praying for these individuals. I, we were so encouraged. Um, it was a, like a month ago we were at someone's house. They, they did their devotions with their kids before they put their kids to bed, and, and we sat in there with them. And, and this couple prayed for someone to, to come to know Jesus with their kids. So, so praying for people, speaking the gospel to people, demonstrating the gospel, our, our gospel enterprise, our proclaiming the gospel is a all-of-life holistic endeavor, and, and we need to press hard into that. Um, so encourage one another, talk to one another, 
and then pray for our church. As, as we establish a physical presence somewhere, we want to use that to, to be a gospel enterprise and to proclaim the gospel in our preaching as we welcome the community in through various activities, through the resources that we provide. Um, this, this is one way that God gives us to use our speech in a spirit-filled, spirit-enabled way. We should move on then to this next section. And, and I would suggest here that from the example that we're given, we should be motivated to use our speech and our words to encourage one another. So Paul writes in verse 21, Tychicus, our dearly beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I am sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are, and to encourage your hearts. Once again, as you get to all, any, any ending, ending of an epistle, we start to get to material that we might say, let's pass over this. These are logistical comments that belong in, in the Ephesian church bulletin, not in the Bible. We, we don't need these because they don't matter to us. Well, this is not a bulletin text. This is a Bible text, and we need to think about it that way. And, and I want to propose that as we look at what Paul is commissioning Tychicus to do, which is to use his words to inform the church about gospel ministry so that they would be encouraged, we should think of the way that we use our words and ask whether or not our words inform people about the work of God in this world and, and lead to their encouragement. Um, so there is not a direct command here, encourage people with your words. But there is a very good example of someone who's doing this. And as we reflect on the way that the Bible talks about our words and the way that they can be used, I, I think we need to hear this text in that larger context. Um, so all over in the Bible, there are, you know, um, comparisons in the way that people use their words, either for healing or for destruction for praising or for cursing. And when we reflect on this, I think we should ask, how am I using my words? If, if someone was writing about me, um, or if, if someone was commissioning me, do I use my speech in the kind of way that they could trust me to be sent to, to encourage others with my words? Or do I use my words in a, in a death, deathly way? So I wanna draw your attention to one text. In Proverbs 15, four, the proverb goes this way. The tongue that heals is a tree of life, but a devious tongue breaks the spirit. Um, the, the tongue that heals, that is, that gives encouraging, life-giving words, is like the tree of life. Think about that. Um, the, the places the tree of life shows up in the Bible, in the garden, and then Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. They're not permitted to eat of that tree of life. The next time you see it super clearly is in Revelation in the new creation. And, and there is access to new creation realities through our speech as, as our words become a tree of life, anticipating the healing that, that will come in the new creation. And, and when Paul is talking about using our words in this way, this is one text, but throughout the Old Testament, this is how the Bible talks about our words. They, they can give life to people as we encourage them. Well, Paul thought it was important for churches to be encouraged, so important that he, while in prison, commissions another person to use words in an encouraging way. Well, I think we should learn for that and think, how are we using our words? Are we encouraging people? When, when we speak, when the words that come out of our mouth 
Are they an inbreaking of death? Are they like the serpent's words that are devious and, and crafty and lead people away from life in the Lord? Or are they healing? Do they speak words of truth and encouragement that draw people into the life of God? Well, I'll leave that with you to, to think about and to consider how you use your words. But people who are being transformed by the Spirit um, have, have the life of the Spirit in them, and that should change the way that we speak as we now work to encourage one another. Finally, um, Paul ends his letter with a word of blessing. Once again, this is not a command, but is there's this theme of speech and how words are used throughout. I think that we can imitate Paul as we now respond to this by blessing one another. He writes, Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. And this really just parallels the way he started the letter. Everything that he's saying is, is to pronounce a blessing on the people of God. Now, we, we often don't think in these terms. When we read books like Ruth, it's common, you know, when Boaz enters the story, they, they bless him and he blesses them back. We don't usually do that. When someone walks into church, we don't say, blessed are you in the name of the Lord or something like that. That's a little bit outside of our, our normal experience. But I don't know that it should totally be outside of our realm of experience. I, I think that we should pray for God's blessing on one another. We should pray for God's blessing on this assembly, for God's blessing on others assembly, other assemblies, knowing that God is working on their behalf as they, they work on God's behalf to declare the gospel and speak words of life and encouragement and prayer. We should bless one another with words of peace and hope and grace. If we believe that in Christ these things are offered to us, why would we not offer them to our fellow Christians? We should be doing this. We should offer words of blessing and peace to one another. Now, how do we do this as a church? How, how does this happen in a corporate setting? In our services, you'll notice that at the end of every service, we have a word of blessing, something that we might call a benediction. This is one of the reasons that we do that. So if you've ever been confused, why, why do they end the service with a word like, uh, may the Lord bless and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace? Why, why are words like that uttered at the end of a service? Well, it's really an imitation of the way that Paul departs his communication to the churches in his letters, in the way that the other apostles do this. These benedictions are an imitation of, of this example of blessing one another. I'm going to read a really lengthy quote here that explains this, but I think it's just put so well and it's helpful enough that it's worth reading. This, this guy writes in a commentary on Ephesians, the benediction at the end of the Christian worship service is its absolute high point. Now, he might be overstating the case there. There might be other high points, but it is its commissioning point. It sends you off with a word of blessing. He says, due to our human weakness, it may be that we long for it to occur for the wrong reason. Parents, for parents, it means no more than uh, no longer dealing with fidgeting kids. For kids, it means no more fidgeting in anticipation of a snack and playtime. So what he's saying is we might look forward to a word of blessing because it means everything's done. That, that would be the bad reason to look forward to these words of blessing. Um, he says instead, I challenge you, however, to see the concluding benediction is the crown jewel of our corporate worship with the Lord every week. 
Its origin at the end of worship service is the apostolic benedictions at the end of the epistles. Its meaning goes back to the Israelite high priest's solemn covenant function to put God's name on his people so that he can bless them. The benediction in our service is not a pious wish of the minister. Um, Instead, what makes it so special is what God is already doing. He's already put his name on us and blesses us with his smile and with his peace. And so as we come to the conclusion of our services, where we have this word of benediction, it's, it's not a magical um, incantation that comes out of my mouth, but instead it's an affirmation of what God has already done. In Jesus Christ, he's already put his name on you. He's already spent, sent his peace and his blessing with you. And in, when you hear those words, and as you anticipate them, enter into them and affirm the reality of the words that are said and take them as the words that mark your activity for the rest of the week until we gather again. Remembering and believing and receiving the peace and the love and the grace of God. That, that is the blessing that goes with you. So as we think back to how we started, in, in the way that we use our words that are colored by the Spirit, it would be just as silly for you to think that religious talk, either in prayer or gospel proclamation or encouragement or blessing, should only come out of our mouths when, when we're at the payphone of the church's gathering or something like that. That, that, would, be, um, that would be insanity. Just as insane as it would be for you to drive around the city looking for a payphone so you can finally make a call, it would be insane of you to think that the the spirit-transformed words should only come out of my mouth when I'm here on Sunday. God's word to you in in Isaiah 59, um, I want to read this because it's it's very, very good. He, He says that my spirit is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children, or from the mouths of your children's children from now on and forever. Well, well, as you go, go um, with the conviction and the persuasion that God's word should not stop coming out of your mouth because you've left this building, but instead that they should go with you and proceed from you as a representation of the true word that we have in Christ, that we are his, that we have received peace in him now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Spirit who transforms us and who transforms our speech. We confess that we fail to allow our words to be shaped by the Spirit. We pray that you would change us, that you would change that reality, and that wherever we go, we would be like a tree of life where people find healing and grace and peace and joy. Would we use our words in this way this week as we communicate your kindness to us. In Christ we pray. Amen.